Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, with uh, an excellent show for you tonight as we record. I just watched, I literally just watched uh, an outstanding new documentary called Born in, Born in Avin, which is a story that follows the child of an Iranian immigrant to Germany who is trying to piece together the early days of her life as she was born in this uh, prison and she was trying to put the pieces together in a situation where it's, it's very difficult to find answers. And I'm very excited to be speaking with Tara Sapari Far, who is a researcher with the Human Rights Watch working in the Middle East and North Africa Division, who's joining me from D.C. to talk about the film. Tara, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, as I said, I just watched the film, so I'm, I'm my mind's going in a, in a million different directions. But uh, I'm very excited to have your expertise here to help guide me through this, because you know, as anyone who's listened to the show before knows, I'm a Canadian cultural historian, so this is a little outside of my realm, and and I love learning about the, the these things that that I'm I'm not overly familiar with. So so let's start with the the basic here of the film with the title being Born in Evan, which is a political prison. And again, you know, not my level of expertise. So this is a place that I, before the film, wasn't familiar with, immediately Googled it up and uh, learned some of what happened there. But, but could you just talk to us to start about this particular prison? Because it seems like for uh, Iranians and people who, who research and understand Iran, that this is a pretty notorious place. So Evin is actually um, one of the main detention centers um, slash prisons in Tehran. It's located in north of the city uh, where actually it's a much wealthier neighborhood. Uh, and um, right now it's actually right by a major highway. So if you commute from west to east or up north, you almost always um, drive by it. And the reason um, you uh, found um, those references when you Googled the name is because um, historically many of the political uh, prisoners and um, other activists who've been arrested um, by Iranian authorities have been detained um, detained in different wards of Evin prison. So it's not exclusively for political prisoners. Other um, other crimes um, and uh, such as, for example, some financial crimes and people um, convicted of those might also end up serving time in Evin. But the reputation is certainly because of the large number of political uh, prisoners who have spent time there. Um, there are actually um, jokes in um, Iranian uh, um, in Iranian culture about Evin. Um, about it being uh, a place that uh, more educated segments of the society end up because at times in uh, special wards of prison where um, where um, particularly intelligence authorities arrest people, you have at times dozens of journalists, lawyers, um, political activists um, there. Um, and it's actually a very sad and bitter reality. But yeah, it, it, these days, I think if you ask people 
what they think of as being um, many will be reminded of uh, the political repression in Iran. Was it a prison or is it a prison that is associated with the post-revolutionary period? So that 1979, uh, Khomeini comes in, comes to power, and the film, at least, seems to situate it as this was when people, political uh, prisoners, started to get sent there. Is that an accurate reflection of the, the history of this particular prison? So actually, the, the prison uh, was open before the revolution, and it actually housed political prisoners before the revolution as well. Um, so that's kind of the irony, and and um, releasing prisoners, political prisoners from prison, um, very close to the days of um, Iran's 79 revolution was a very iconic moment uh, that basically reunited people who were who were political prisoners with the revolutionary crowd. And ironically, um, the prison the prison ended up being a place that again political prisoners were detained. There actually people, uh, political activists in Iran who have served time both before and after after the revolution in that prison. Um, but um, but the, the period, um, the, the, the um, crackdown against uh, um, political activists, uh, mainly um, leftist activists and members of the Mujahideen Khalq uh, group um, that um, that took place in um, the first decade after the Iranian Revolution, um, also added to to the negative reputation of this this prison. And wh- I'm really confused. What I was really confused about early in the film certainly is this this break then between pre seventy nine and post seventy nine. Because as you just said, there were people who served in this prison both pre and post and, and the film situates the the parent Miriam's parents and we'll talk about Miriam and her story uh, in a minute but they situate her parents and, and her generation as people who were who were fighting for freedom and, and a more just society and then you see the the images of it but then Khomeini comes in and, and takes power so you know just for for people who don't know what happens in 79 that some that this idealism that seems to emerge as part of the the revolution is replaced by this repressive regime that gets put into place or or, or assumes power at least so in the in the years prior to 79 you have different political factions um, um, act, um, active against the um, the ruling government, the monarchy government in power, um, many of them actually belong to uh, leftist ideologies. Um, some belong to more um, nationalistic ideologies and um, and are closer to um, um, the ideology of the prime minister, Mohammad um, Mossadegh, who was um, ousted by uh, what many historians call it a coup in 1953. And then you have many of the religious forces, more moderate or more hardline religious forces, um, kind of united in this in this fight against the um, against the government. Um, and um, in the last 
few years, you have Ayatollah Khomeini emerging as the de facto leader for the revolution. Um, very quickly, you have uh, you have him becoming the icon, arriving in Iran um, ten days before the revolution uh, finally succeeds, and then him assuming assuming uh, power. Um, or the position of supreme leader or the leader of the revolution as uh, the transitional government is is figuring out the, the new system referendum is being proposed and different different constitutional issues are being discussed um, so at first what you have is uh, him occupying obviously this iconic and important position, but you have different political factions um, uh, around him and people who uh, even uh, people who, for example, served in um, in the transitional in the interim government. Um, many of them ended up uh, facing uh, facing persecution afterwards. So what uh, what emerges out of the revolution at first is a government that has Islamic tendencies, but it's not hasn't consolidated power fully, and there is an understanding that um, that uh, different political parties will be allowed to operate. Uh, what actually united all these different groups um, in their um, in their in their political fight uh, was articulated by many of them as the fight against imperialism and what they saw as as for example United States. Um, role in 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 decision making in the government so there's a lot of that tendencies but then very quickly um uh, you have the you have the students um taking over the u.s embassy um, in less than a year from revolution and and the, the interim government resigning in protests because Ayatollah Khomeini endorses that move the interim government doesn't so you have uh, basically a group of people exiting um, the political structure, and then um, soon after you have um, things are volatile, and then you have Iran-Iraq war. You have some um, some groups um, that um, take up arms against and, and against the government, and the idea of uh, the idea of armed resistance against the government is is revived. You have um, the main um, one of the main um, Marxist Islamist group Mujahideen uh, relocating um, in um, in Iraq and deciding to fight the government against that. So in this very um, volatile situation and at the time that Iran-Iraq war is taking place, um, there's also a mass arrest of, of political opposition, uh, many of them for for accusations that are or even charges that are very petty. There were people who were arrested for selling newspapers or for merely being members of political parties. Um, and then the turns of event come goes in a direction that the political establishment decides to make this very horrific decision that I'm sure we'll discuss more to um, execute um, hundreds, if not more, uh, members of um, the opposition um, opposition parties who were who were, who were detained in um, in prisons across the country um and were actually most of them were serving their 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 time um so those are very quick turns of event that and um but nothing can justify 
um, justify the crimes that have been committed. And that's one of the things that's really interesting in, in watching, again, watching the film is that it, it does feel really fast that this, this turnaround, as you mentioned, that it goes from revolution, community, and then uh, the executions, as you said. So, you know, what is happening on the sort of day-to-day level for, for Iranians, uh, you know, people in Tehran, while this is going on, like if you're not someone who's a, a identified at least as a strong political opponent, you're not maybe politically active at all, you're going about living your, your life and trying to avoid maybe this, like what is the day-to-day for people through this period? Is it is it a case where, like, I get, I, I would almost get the sense that everyone is kind of really looking over their shoulder and making sure they're not saying the wrong thing to the wrong person. And it, it almost becomes like a police state of sort. I mean, it's a very quick turn of events. So imagine revolution is a major turnover of power in Iran. It affects everyone's life. Uh, you, have, um, you have the referendum, you have the new constitution, you have um, a very quickly enforcement of compulsory hijab. A lot of things are changing in the society and there is this revolutionary fever. And there were, for example, arms that were distributed in the streets. So the government is trying to take back these arms and they're setting up different systems, different um, neighborhood policing system to take these arms back, but also reinforcing whatever this new revolutionary rule is going to look like. And then and a major turn of events is taking over the U.S. embassy, something that um, that to this day has has uh, left a very huge mark on Iran's uh, Iran's uh, relationship with the rest of the world, particularly the Western world and the United States. And then you have you have the um, you have the invasion but, uh, that happens by Saddam Hussein. Um, so regardless of where you stand uh, politically, um, your life is in turmoil and li- your life is going through big changes. It's a combination of maybe hope, maybe disappointment, maybe fear, uncertainty. Um, and then um, it's, it's a time that political, um, political activism is actually very popular among different families. If you read the stories of um, different families during that time of revolution, you have families uh, with children um, who are members of different political parties. Um, but maybe parents are not particularly educated or interested in politics, but then you have four children and two of them are members of one party, two of them are members of the other party. And then it, all of a sudden you have this... Um, you also have this increased crackdown. Um, and then you also have families that some members are uh, uh, pro-crackdown while some members of mem- or some other family members are basically the affected community. So, so but I think um, obviously there was no social media or mass media at the time. Um, so the scale of this um, of what happened in the 80s was not known to the broader public for for years. Uh, basically, at the time that these executions were happening, you were only um, you were only aware of it if you had a family member. 
and family members weren't necessarily openly talking about it as well. So you knew of a cousin or a, a relative who was in prison and didn't come back. So there was definitely this sense of fear and 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 um, and so the silence. But I wouldn't say that it was broadly known by a public. Um, actually, I think we'll talk about it. Something that happened in the past few years made it a much more widely known chapter of Iran's history than what it used to be in the early 80s. Right. And and in, in terms of the, the people not knowing, unless unless you had a family member, that that's part of what I was going to ask is, is there's so much else going on, as you mentioned, you know, the relationship with the United States, the Iran-Iraq war. You know, how much does the the new regime that, that comes to power after the revolution, how much are they using the external and the, the things that are happening happening internationally with Iran from a, you know, from, we would say today, like a public relations point to try to unite people behind those things while also keeping the news about the executions uh, and, and that kind of stuff, that, that quiet, right? Was that something that was used to great effect in trying to quell any sort of political opposition? Um, definitely. So um, the war is, a, is the major event. The major news of the day is the war, um, and it's impacting people's lives. And it's um, basically, um, I think, is used, has been used to consolidate um, the mo more hardline factions of power in Iran, eliminating all the other people who were not behind us, um, the martial war and the, the need to defend. Uh, but that doesn't mean all the people who participated in the war or, or joined, joined the military necessarily believed in the ideology of the Islamic Republic. Many people were, were merely defending that what, the, what they um, believed was uh, defending their homeland from an aggression. Um, and it's, I think, important to also note that the, the, the executions happened very quietly um, and without any transparency, even within the um, near, like within the semi-functional checks and balances that existed at the time. So there are all these different narratives how authorities weren't properly informed or there was an attempt to keep the order to a very close circle of, of Ayatollah Khomeini and those revolutionary prosecutors who were leading the, leading the executions. So it wasn't a broad deliberation, um, even among the people in power. Uh, it was a decision that was made um, um, ultimately, I think, by the highest people in the power and was executed quickly in kind of in a very secretive manner and then as probably comes up in the film there there's also a lot of efforts to ensure that the families don't necessarily um, 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 get a public um, ceremony or burial or memorial there, there are a lot of repression that that comes afterwards as well. So even to this day, there's no proper um, proper place of burial for these people, and and there have been efforts to um, to even destroy evidence and signs of some of these cemeteries across the country. Yeah. So so you mentioned the film, and this it does follow the story of Maryam Zuri, who is a uh, Iranian 
born a German actress, and it follows her efforts to understand the circumstances of her birth and subsequent um, move to, to Germany. And, you know, she's trying to get answers, and, and her both of her parents were in the prison. Uh, she was, as a baby, let out, and then her mother and, and her go to Germany, and her father is left behind, and, and sort of follows the story of her trying to get answers, and she comes up with the, to a lot of roadblocks, not the least of which early in the film is her mother, who doesn't want to talk about this. So in, in addition to you know destroying evidence, as you mentioned, how common is this experience for, you know, Miriam and I are the same age. So, you know, a people in their mid thirties uh, who are children of Iranian uh, people who were in prison here, like how common is this experience in your work at, at the Human Rights Watch that you have this generation of Iranians who just who don't know a lot about their early childhoods? I mean, this is a very particular group of people. Um, there are not few of them, but this, uh, but they haven't been united and they haven't talked to each other necessarily. Um, Marianne's mom is basically a refugee who fled horrific persecution in Iran and had to um, had to raise her child uh, in a society um, that was foreign foreign to her and her pain. Um, if you talk even to most first generation immigrants, they experience a lot of issues trying to integrate in the society and trying to succeed. So imagine Mariam's mom was not only had to deal with that, but was also carrying this huge burden, this huge trauma with her. Um, and so and I think that's that's the powerful part of the movie that shows how she pushed through um all of these things to 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 establish her life in Germany, but also chose to not open this wound that was probably very painful to to think about. Um, and many of the people who experienced um, experienced persecution in that period um, were not very forthcoming with their experiences, and and I think it's also important. Um, to understand that there's a there's a gender element here as well. Um, um, the political parties at the time, um, even the ones that were necessarily Islamic, they were kind of patriarchal in so many ways. So the experience of women in prison um, is less documented than men, even even to the extent that it's been documented. So there are many layers of trauma and there are many reasons why it's difficult for um for Marianne to um, to find out the truth about um, about her um, about her her childhood, um, but I think part of it is this um, is is the silence that exists um, uh, for many people because they that that was the that was the only way available to them to deal with their trauma. And, and certainly this is something that has been studied, this this way in which people deal with trauma and then the trauma on the subsequent generation. And there's a, I don't know if it's ironic or not, but uh, you see in the film her stepfather, who is a researcher of trauma and works with 
uh, survivors of the Holocaust and children of survivors of the Holocaust and is studying this transmission of trauma between generations. And then you, you see uh, Miriam's relationship with her mother uh, and, and sort of going on, on the same way. And, and I'll just say, too, that the story of Miriam's mother uh, just post-Iran is incredible. Uh, sort of her her story, right? She she gets a doctorate, runs for mayor. Uh, like she she has this incredible story uh, herself. Uh, not only what happens to her in Iran, but her post Iran story is uh, amazing as well and is captivating in the film. Uh, but it, it does lead to this question of of when we're talking about trauma, and maybe this is is something that is that that you would come up against a, a lot in your research and your work on what's going on and, and what has happened in Iran, you know, it, I can understand people not wanting to talk about what happened to them and not being able to or not wanting to, to address that trauma in an upfront way. But, but just from a, a research perspective for you, and you mentioned that the gendered element, that the women's stories weren't really documented as well, you know, how do you go about trying to determine what happened, uh, figure it out, and come to some sort of conclusion that, that we can use to better understand this era of Iranian history? I mean, it, what you mentioned is really interesting. I think Maryam's mom consciously or unconsciously is trying to prove that she's more than just a victim. Mm -hmm. um, she's proving her agency by accomplishing an amazing thing in her life and proving that she, she has she has the agency to become who she is so getting through this 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 difficult processing this trauma in a way that you're comfortable talking about it comfortable documenting it um and assuring people that that it is not just it's not playing the role of victimhood but Participating in a process of documentation is is very important. Um, in part of the film, you you see the um, you see the symbol a symbolic trial, um, the people's trial um, for um, for the atrocities committed during that period. And I think that very much shows how uh, many of these families are participating, are coming forward, are sharing their stories, and they because they want to. They're convinced that by doing this, it will lead to it will lead to a result. I think part of the problem it's not unique to that period, but what we face in documenting human rights is is explaining to people why documentation is important because it's not easy for for people to remember their most painful uh, memories. Um, and um, several people starting with survivors of, uh, of the persecution in that period have worked on documenting um, documenting what happened in prisons in Iran during the 80s mass execution and have built evidence and lobbied um, different international entities and governments to work on this issue. But obviously there's a lot more that needs to be done. Um, a few years ago, um, an audio tape uh, was was widely published um, in Iran that I think had a, had a very important impact on carrying the message of these families to the broader Iranian public. Um, the audio tape is from a meeting that took place 
at the height of these executions between um, basically the second person in command, the deputy of Ayatollah Khomeini, and three members of the panel that were deciding uh, about the fate of these prisoners. It is a, it's probably the most uh, important piece of evidence, um, an audio form of evidence um, that, that shows the thinking behind behind these crimes, in which it, the audio tape is a conversation. It this this figure, this uh, the deputy um, Ayatollah Montazeri, was always known as a more liberal figure. He opposed um, executions um, at the time, and he was he was put under he was um, he, he was ousted from his his position. He was put at different periods under house arrest. Um, he he always leaned towards supporting the. Um, the the, um, the activists and, and the broader social and political freedom. So in this audio, um, he is very critical of the, the approach, um, and he's very upset about this. He's found out about these executions taking place, and he can He thinks this is this is the the most horrific crime that the Islamic Republic of Iran will be remembered. But this will be this will be a stain that we can't wash off, um, and so. His name was 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 very prominent in the Iranian politics. Many people knew his name. Um, he played a role during the Iran's um, Green Movement in, um, in the aftermath of Iran's 2000, um, 2009 election. So that audio tape, when it was published and it was broadcasted through social media, different um, Persian um, uh, TV stations outside the country, all of a sudden, I think... Uh, put something in front of the broader Iranian population that couldn't easily be denied. So I think it's a combination of working on documentation, but also finding ways to speak about it inside the country. I'm As much as the, the events outside the country and, and efforts for justice are important, but also finding ways to have this conversation with different parties, with the neighbor who wasn't aware of what happened to to their own neighbor at the time, um, to people who thought the government was defending their defending national security, to, to show them the way this was done was an injust was was an absolute injustice. I think it's very important, and many people are doing this work, but there are many challenges. Well, yeah, that that's something I wanted to ask you about because certainly from a, a Western perspective, and you know, I guess that part of it too depends on the type of media you consume. But there, I think there's a certain perception of Iran as a somewhat closed society in that not a lot of you know international media gets in. That that we have this view of you know there's not a lot of dissension that is allowed or tolerated, but. And then you had the situation with the uh, where the Ukrainian aircraft was was shot down, and then we saw uh, images of people protesting in the streets. So that that certainly counters the idea that there's no criticism allowed uh, of the government. So, so for for people who don't know, and, and I would include myself in this, what is the level of political discourse within Iran that would have these sorts of discussions that you're talking about, or what, but what happened in the 1980s about these uh, executions? You know, what what is the permissibility of those, and how free 
are people to engage in these type of discussions? So, I mean, it's, I often struggle explaining Iran to, <laughs> to people who have not um, experienced living there because, as you said, it's a very repressive society, but it's also uh, not a not a monotone society in a way that people behave in a certain way. You can you can have a very lively political debate in a cab, in a shared cab, in, in streets of Tehran. You'll find your cab driver openly criticizing the government and you will find people openly debating some of these issues. They don't make it to the to the state narrative. They don't they're not broadcasted on state TV. Um, newspapers are not allowed to publish many of that, but uh, this debate is happening, and now with social media, the boundaries are actually a lot harder to dis- to, to distinguish. Um, so, um, and then we can explain: you have elected parts of the government, you have non-elected bodies, you have power power struggle between these two. Over time, the non-elected bodies have 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 gotten a lot more power, um, repressing even the limited. Um, limited space for elected bodies to operate it, it's it i don't think i would be able to explain iran in, in, <laughs> in, in this short amount of time but just to give you a sense of how um these issues make it to the political debate i'm going to use an example so in the last presidential election in 2017 the person who ran against um, the current president um uh, Hassan Rouhani, um, who is now actually the head of Iran's judiciary, um, Ayatollah Raisi, Ibrahim Raisi at the time, he was actually one of the people who uh, who served on, on the panel that decided about the execution of prisoners. Um, and this happened after that audio tape I mentioned was already published. So his past indirectly was very much topic of the conversation, uh, and uh, he was being portrayed as this very hardline figure with a very dark past. Um, to the point that um, I remember, I was I pay attention about Iranian elections. Um, I remember I woke up one day and read one of Rouhani's um, uh, election speeches, election the campaign speeches, and I was shocked. And I was like, I. I I've woken up in a different planet um, because he had referred to his own past different from the past uh, record of repression and executions. And I'm like, well, are you indirectly referring to 80s? And this is not to say this is not necessarily to say uh, to, to say if his mention is is a genuine commitment to reform or not. I think what we have seen uh, indicates that it wasn't by any means, but it's just to show that the, this can go to this level um, and the issues can be debated. Of course, there's a group of people who are defending the executions and saying it was the right thing, it was the necessary thing. All these people were terrorists. All of them were were uh, were convicted of um, using arms against the government, and they they deserve it. But then there's a the pushback. That also comes inside the country. It might happen through social media because people can post from anywhere they are and it can be read. Twitter is still blocked in Iran, but almost all government officials have an account and actively participate. So the debate, <laughs> debate is happening. So it's very difficult to distinguish, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't assume that this information doesn't get, doesn't get translated in 
the domestic political discourse because of the official red lines and censorship. And it's very difficult to explain how and why, but but almost all these issues get debated. Um, and occasionally, even official political figures uh, um, make a comment about them. And how much, too, does the mobility of people into and out of Iran influence these discussions as well? I mean, one of the things, of course, about the the, the plane uh, being shot down earlier this month was that so many, I can't remember the exact number, but a, a lot of the people on that plane were Canadian citizens, Canadian citizens, and the majority of the people on the plane were coming to Canada, uh, a lot as students and faculty members here who were back in Iran, you know, with the holiday break, visiting family and friends, those sorts of things. So you, you have this mobility into and out of, to a certain degree, even though it can be difficult, you know, there's not direct flights from the, from North America. You know, how much does that mobility of, of people, you know, going to different countries, studying, researching, and then bringing that background into Iran, how much does that influence these discussions? And, you know, as we see around the world and other places, you know, through both social media, uh, the, the, you know, the borders are starting to be broken down a little bit as, as people and ideas move around. You know, how much does this seemingly internationalization of the Iranian population, has that started to influence these political discussions? I would say the physical internationalization, the one you just described, the population um, migration um, is an important factor um, because um, in the early uh, decades after the revolution, a lot of people with engineering and medical degrees went went to the West to, to study. But more recently, particularly before um, the most recent administration to the U.S. came to power and a lot of other issues came with it, including uh, broad sanctions that are impacting Iranian population in so many different ways. There were actually people in in fields of humanities, art, social sciences also coming to study and, and widening the debate on some of these issues. So the, that element is important, but also I would not understate the import, importance of the, 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 the quote-unquote digital space. Hmm. Um, it started with satellites um, in Iran. Some of the satellite um, channels were uh, that were um, based in, for example, Los Angeles. Um, a group of diaspora people didn't have the same quality, but now you have actually um, channels that are quite popular in Iran. They're inter combination of entertainment and news. So you have uh, you have the BBC Persian um, TV channel. That's the that could be the main source of news for many people, and BBC has also competitors. Um, there are different um, different news channels, um, and then you also have what I, the social media that people are using. Instagram is very popular. Twitter is very popular. Telegram is very popular. So um, the border that you just described, either physically or dig digitally, is less meaningful because. Um, People who might be sitting in a village in Iran um, can have access to information. Um, in 2014, I think, um, Iranian government allowed um, 
internet 4G, 3G and 4G internet on um, on cell phones that exponentially increased access to information. Um, and that's why we have a massive internet shutdown when we have popular dissents because it's recognized actually social media played a role in different elections in the country. Um, candidates used it as, as their main tool to, um, to disseminate their messaging. So it's both physical but also digital. Uh, and also bear in mind like in let's say in 80s and 90s if you had a family member living in Canada, Europe, US, the best you could do um, if you could afford it was a phone call once a month. Um, now with cell phone applications, um, I talk to my parents a couple of times a day if I have to. Um, I constantly know where they are, what they do. Um, it's the same for the rest of Iranian families. So there's a constant communication and and exchange of information. Um, if I want to react to something that's unfolding in Iran or here, uh, where I'm sitting in the United States, I, I all I need is to is to text someone on my WhatsApp or other messaging app, and it doesn't matter where they're located. So this this exchange of information is not only happening physically, but also through digital space. What do you think people will get out of this film? You know, it's it's showing in Toronto on Sunday. You're going to be there to to lead a discussion uh, afterwards. You, you know, for for you know this this won a bunch of awards in uh, Germany at the Berlin Film Festival, which I'll mention uh, in a minute. But you know, for for someone who is uh, a researcher in what happens in Iran, obviously you mentioned your personal connection to the country. For for people who are coming to this to this film and seeing it, what do you expect the reaction to be, or what have you seen the reaction to be uh, from people who have seen it? What captured me about this movie and the reason I was very excited about showing it at the festival um, is that is is what I said in the beginning. It's very it's a personal story, but it allows you to get very close to um, seeing um, one of the darkest chapters of Iran's recent history through the eyes of a person who is who actually grew up in the West but is searching for truth about her own childhood. Um, I found it very easy to connect to this story. And, I, and what I hope um, people get out of it is the same thing, being able to um, to follow this story because it's a very difficult part of it, the history. It's a very painful part. It's a very dark part. But I think the film does a very good job of telling it in a personalized narrative that makes it that makes it easy for for the audience to relate, even though they might not have the necessary um, political uh, or historical understanding of the context. Yeah, I agree. I'm a you know, I grew up outside of Toronto. My name is Sean Graham, right? You sort of get a sense of what my uh, sort of what my family history is based on that name. And, and so, you know, very different background. But the humanity of this film uh, just makes it very easy to, you know, attach yourself to it. And it's it's really is quite captivating. So I completely agree with everything you said. Uh, and as I mentioned, 
go on Sunday, February the 2nd, 1 p.m. at Hot Dogs. Hat, I say that wrong all the time whenever I say it. Uh, Sunday, February 2nd, 1 p.m. at Hot Docs Ted Rogers Cinema. This is part of the 17th Annual Human Rights Watch Film Festival that's going on in Toronto. The film Born in Evin, it won a ton of awards. Uh, the, it's an official selection from the Berlin Film Festival, winner of the best film, uh, the Perspective Deutsch Kino program uh, in 2019. Uh, just a, a wonderful film, so definitely go check it out. And uh, Tara Sapari Far will be there on Sunday leading a discussion. So for people coming to that, uh, the discussion side of it, are you planning a Q&A type thing, or uh, do you have a, a presentation lined up? Like, like how is that discussion going to go? Oh, we're hoping for uh, for a Q and A with um, with me and, and another um, very interesting person, um, a sociologist who will be um, who will be on the panel. Okay, uh, so yeah, so definitely go. Uh, should be a wonderful day. Even if you're you know a big Super Bowl person, uh, you can go to the film. You can participate in the discussion, and you'll be home easily in time to uh, to watch the Super Bowl. But, uh, you know, after Can seeing I make this... a correction? Please do, yeah. Because I know I will be held accountable. Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, our other panelist is a sociocultural anthropologist, and I know there's a big difference, so I don't want to... Yeah, we don't want the sociologists getting after us. Yeah, uh, you know, exactly. they're, they're, they're a vicious bunch, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So definitely check it out. And uh, Tara, thank you so much for joining this, joining me this evening. And uh, safe travels up to Toronto this weekend. Thank you. I'm very much hoping for not super cold weather. <laughs> yeah, ho- hopefully not. It's, it's, I think it's been okay recently. Uh, you know, as long as you don't get any snow, no delays, we should be fine. That's what I'm hoping for. If you have any questions or comments for the show, you can find us at HistorySlam at gmail.com. I am at Dr. Shawnee Fever on Twitter. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your show. Give us the likes, ratings, all that fun stuff to keep the show going. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.